years ago during the Depression, there was a successful businessman who lived in Pittsburgh. In fact, at the time, he would have been referred to as a tycoon. As many people did during that time, this individual had a lot of problems in his life, and so he went and spoke to his pastor. He said to his pastor, I love my Savior, I love my family, I love my church, I love my business, but there are times I feel like walking out on all four of them. The pastor looked him dead in the eyes and said, well, why don't you? And the man answered, because I'm a Christian. As you hear that, many of you think, amen. Others may think, that's not enough. This is a sentiment in this man's life that many Christians feel at times. To do what we know is right, to do what is ethical, because I'm a Christian despite having the feelings and the desires to do what is unethical, to pursue sin. But what stops them is their faith. And I'm often asked, in a similar situation, is that a suitable answer? Well, I want to do something, but I don't do it because I'm a Christian. You want to do it. You may fantasize about doing it. You may even envision the steps you would take in your mind to do that, to pursue that sin. In fact, in a little bit, at the end of our service, some of you will even confess those thoughts in order to take communion. But in the end, you don't do it. With those same words, with that same argument, because I'm a Christian. And the answer to that question, is that an appropriate response arises from an all-too-familiar desire, and that desire is addressed in our new series in James chapter 2. It's a series that I have entitled, Faith Works. But even how you view that phrase, faith works, will show you a lot about what you understand regarding what James is about to teach us over the next three or four weeks. Faith works. When I say that, do I mean works as a noun, the works of faith? Is works a verb? Faith that is working. Is works an adjective? Faith that works. Or is it all three? Well, I ask you to join me in James chapter 2 and verse 14. And this morning, we'll begin unpacking the answer to all of these questions. In this new series, Faith Works. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 is an introduction to our series and will be our passage for this morning. Let me read that for you. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. This morning, I want to give you three significant matters of faith in light of our call to obedience. 
three significant matters of faith in light of our call to obedience. The first significant matter is the elementary concern of faith, and we see this in verse 14, the elementary concern of faith. In the form of two rhetorical questions, in verse 14, James sets up the theme of the next major section of his letter, faith and works. The fundamental, the crucial, the elementary concern that he has is that of those who claim to have saving faith but have no works to back up that claim. So let's take a look. The first rhetorical question James poses to his brethren is this. What use is it if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? In other words, if someone says, I'm a Christian, I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, His righteousness, His work on the cross, but that same person's life does not reflect Christ. There is no obedience. There is no reflection of holiness in His behavior. There is no pursuit of holiness. There are no, as James puts it, works that reflect the faith he professes. In that individual, James asks, what's the use of making such a claim? To claim that you are a believer. To claim that you have faith. What's the use of that kind of faith? And this question, along with the second, which we'll look at in a moment, is phrased in the Greek grammatically and in the English, It's constructed in a way that expects the answer no or nothing, a negative answer. In other words, there is no use for this kind of faith. It is not of any profit, not of any advantage, which is what the word use means in the Greek. The ESV and NIV, and this will be helpful, the ESV and NIV ask, what good is it? The King James asks, what doth it profit? The answer again is nothing. And I want you to understand that when he says faith, he is speaking of a recognition and professing belief in the truths of the gospel. This is not faith in Buddha or Muhammad. This is faith as we would describe it. Faith in the Creator God, the virgin-born Savior, the death, burial, and resurrection of that Savior, the Word of God. But no works. No active, visible response to the Creator God, the virgin-born Savior, the death, burial, and resurrection of that Savior or the Word of God. We also put it this way, there's no fruit. The passage Dennis read for us earlier in our Scripture reading for this morning, that's what Jesus calls it, a lack of fruit. James calls it works, And this word, works, will be critical throughout his argument, and as such, we should know what he's referring to. The word here is the plural of a common Greek word that means work, action, accomplishment. And in this context, in the biblical context, he is referring to that which is done out of obedience to God. Behavior that conforms to God's word, not only externally, but we know as is so important to the Lord, internally as well. In other words, the heart, the motives, the attitude. In other words, not just things that God wants to see externally, but things that are pleasing and acceptable to Him, which means, again, the right heart attitude. 
So back to the question. James is asking, if we could put it in modern terms, what's the point? What difference does it make to say you have faith if there are no works? And understand that it may make a difference socially in the sense of being welcomed into the church, experiencing the camaraderie otherwise reserved for true believers, but there's no existence of the elementary concern. What ultimately is that concern? And that's shown to us in the next rhetorical question, can that faith save him? And notice he doesn't say, can faith save him? He refers to that faith, the faith that is referred to in the first question. In other words, the faith with no works. And the answer to this question is again, no. Because the lack of works identifies that faith as one that cannot save. Though he may verbalize a faith in the same things a true believer does, the reality is it is a different faith. Because it's a faith that is dead. It is a faith that does not result in true Christianity, which involves works. See, he's, he's not denying that faith is important. Of course he knows faith is important. He's denying that you can be saved by any kind of faith. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And when we talk about being thrown in the fire, we understand what that is an illustration of. It is not help, cultivate, get it healthy. It means it's dead. We don't want that tree. Many of you, I've spoken to many of you, and even seen them personally, your fruit trees. In fact, a blessing in disguise, disguised as a complaint, is there's too much fruit. When the season comes, there's too much fruit. But before, for example, right now in February... Before the time of the fruit harvest, what do you do? There's no fruit. There aren't even any flowers yet that will turn into fruit. You make sure the tree is healthy because you know the fruit will come because it's a healthy tree. Both trees, but one is dead and will bear bad fruit or no fruit at all. Both proclaiming Christianity, both proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ, but there is a tree that bears fruit or good fruit, and there's one that bears bad fruit, which is no fruit at all. Back to James. True faith will find some sort of expression other than a verbal claim, other than a religious sentiment, other than attending church. It's a similar idea to what we saw in chapter 1 and verse 26 of James. When James said that an unbridled tongue is proof of hypocrisy in someone who claims to be a believer. Here, he's bringing forth a variety of things, not just speech. In other words, there is external evidence if there is an internal reality. And it's, it's interesting to note that back in Matthew chapter 7, 
understanding that only God sees the heart, Jesus tells the human people, you will know them by their fruits. So although we can't be definitive, there is evidence externally. We can see when someone behaves according to the Scriptures. Can they deceive us? Yes. We've seen elsewhere that they can deceive themselves. But the point is there's something visible. And this addresses the person who says, well, you don't know my heart. You don't know me. Well, I see you. I see how you speak to people. I see what's in your kitchen. I see what you do with your time. I see where you spend your money. I see how you touch that individual. I can tell, good fruit or bad fruit. We will be able to see. We can't determine if someone is saved or not. We don't decide that. God does. But the point is, even in the midst of the world that we live in, the ever-changing world, all these different trends and movements, the reality is, you can see it. If anything, we should be able to see it even more. This is not a cause for judgment. This is not a license to judge people or criticize them. This is just understanding where we should go in terms of our relationship with that person, fellowship or evangelism. Even without the ability to see their hearts, there will be evidence. And there's no real good time to put this uh, tangent rabbit trail in, but I need to mention this. I want to clarify something that is a source of confusion for many, including, not now, but before, Martin Luther, the Reformer. Martin Luther, coming out of a Catholic background of works righteousness and calling the church to embrace the gospel of faith, being exposed to the Bible and exposed to the writings of Paul, justification by faith alone, came to the epistle of James and said, I don't think this should be in Scripture. He had a problem with it. And the confusion comes from the words of Paul, which seem to contradict what James is saying here. He says it, Paul says it in many places, Romans 3 and 4, Galatians 2 and 3, Ephesians 2, all, all emphasize justification by faith alone. And what Paul emphasizes in his writings is that you cannot earn salvation. It's not about works. It has nothing to do with works, he says. And we can see how similar to Martin Luther, Paul said that because he came from a very legalistic, works-based background of Judaism at the time. And so he says, you cannot be saved by works. And then we come to James, or Martin Luther came to James, and he's told that faith without works is dead and cannot save. And so he was very confused. And I'm you understand where he's coming from at the height. I mean, the Reformation was a war. I hope you guys understand this. People died and then continued to die after what we have written in our history books because of this. And so he is the one who really initiated the battle and the height of this, declaring war. Actually, he didn't declare war. He said, hey, guys, come on. Look at this. We should do this. And then the Catholic Church declared war on him. For him to come across this passage and say, I just declared war because of justification by faith and works don't matter, so I have a problem with James now. This is a a problem here in our arsenal in this war. 
So which is it? Do works matter or do they not? Well, it's both. They don't contradict each other because despite the usage of the same words, they're not addressing the same issue. What Paul is doing is combating a wrong view of works, specifically that works can save you. What James is doing is combating a wrong view of faith, which is you can say you have faith and then live however you want, and that means you're saved. Paul is saying that works can't save. James is saying that true faith results in works. So one, Paul is talking about what leads to salvation. The other is talking about what results from salvation and is thus proof of saving faith. In other words, in the timeline of a particular believer's life from unbelief through salvation to sanctification, Paul and James aren't even talking about the same time period. And so you see how they actually are complementary not contradictory. And they would both agree with what each other are saying. Again, a a nod to the importance of looking at things within their context. Now, speaking of James's works, he proceeds by giving us a simple, explanatory illustration of what he's talking about. And we see this in verses 15 and 16, In our second point for the morning, the enlightening comparison of faith. Look at verses 15 and 16. We're in James 2. He says, for example, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So James gives us a hypothetical situation designated uh, by the conditional word if, uh, but we understand it's probably representative of a mindset or something that's actually happening in that church. We've already seen that earlier in our study of favoritism and how they were treating the poor. But here's the hypothetical. You, as a believer, come across another believer, says brother or sister, who is cold and hungry. Cold because they are underdressed, Not because when they left the house that morning they misjudged the weather, but because they can't afford anything else to wear. In James's day, this would refer to someone who is only wearing the inner under tunic. So they would wear an inner under tunic and then their main tunic, which people would see. So similar to our underwear, but not really. But it just serves as extra insulation under the main tunic. In fact, in John chapter 21 and verse 7, there's a reference to Peter being in the Greek naked because he is only wearing that inner undergarment. So he's not completely nude. It's just what they refer to if you're only wearing your undergarment. Poorly dressed. Definitely not enough to keep you warm, keep you healthy, safe in the cold. Biblically, when we see this picture It has references to poverty as well as to shame. When you drive the streets of San Francisco, you can generally tell who's homeless by their appearance or by the fact that they're holding up a cardboard sign asking for help. They tend to be a little dirtier, unkempt, 
but you can tell by their behavior of obviously looking through trash cans for food or holding up that sign that tells you they are homeless and hungry. But as you look at those people, you see the signs and maybe nothing really pulls on your heartstrings you drive by. You see people looking through the trash and they get half a sandwich and you say, that's a bummer, but at least they got half a sandwich. But then you see someone, especially in this weather, who's barely clothed. And that hits you. Because there is nothing that expresses vulnerability more than someone who is dressed in rags, especially in the cold. We've all gone, not out of poverty, but because of work or whatever it may be, we've all gone skipping a meal or two or maybe not eating for a whole day. But being poorly dressed in the cold in the winter, you don't last very long. The cold and naked are in great need of assistance. Now, the danger that this individual faces in this illustration is more than the elements. James says he is in need of daily food or food for the day. Just as with the clothing, this is not indicative of merely what's going on the day you meet him. This is an ongoing problem. This indicates someone who is habitually underfed and is unable to get a full day supply of food that's needed to sustain his health and even his normal life, normal living, the functioning of his body. So not necessarily starving, but definitely malnourished to the point of not being able to have a normal, healthy life. And James says, you come across this friend, verse 16, and say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give him anything. You don't grab a coat, you don't give him money, you don't give him the snack that's in your pocket, nothing. You just give him your words. Now, go in peace was a common Jewish farewell that we have record of even Jesus using, but in this case, it has kind of an ominous tone as the person is simply saying a sort of departing well-wishing while not actually helping his brother or sister who is in dire need. And to twist the knife in his back, he goes on to say, be warmed, clearly noticing that he's cold, but does nothing to make that happen. Be filled means to be full with food and refers to having hunger satisfied, but nothing is done to meet that particular need. This isn't just neutral. This isn't just eh, kind of polite. This is cruel. It would be nicer to cross the road and pretend you didn't see him than to actually seemingly mock him, to see the need and then do nothing. The point is that this person cannot be warmed and filled, otherwise he would go and do it. So what's the point of saying, nice, go eat? If he could eat, he would go eat. If he could be warm, he would be warm. He can only survive on the charity of others, and here someone sees the need makes a profession of hoping the need is met, then takes no actions to fulfill the needs. James says, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. In other words, you don't provide the necessities to provide that warmth and filling that you seem to be hoping for. 
this would be the ancient equivalent of today's. Not always, but this is what we say today. God bless you. And you walk away. Ah, sorry you're going through that. Hope you have a blessed day. Hope things get better for you and then do nothing to help. And again, the kicker is that with his very words, this person clearly sees the exact things the hurting brother or sister needs, says something to indicate that, says something that seems pleasant and hopeful, but then dashes that hope by not doing anything for that person. Ooh, that was a hard fall. Looks like something's broken. Hope someone calls 911 for you, and then you walk away. Hope someone picks you up out of the path of that moving car, and then you walk away. As absurd as that sounds, this is exactly what James's illustration would sound like to his readers, but let's not forget the point. What use is it then to say you have faith, but there are no actions to match your profession? Again, the expected answer to the rhetorical question at the end of verse 16 is none. There is no use to your mere words if there is no tangible help given to this guy who is cold and starving. There is no use, there is no tangible advantage for you in terms of eternity or salvation to make a profession of faith and there are no works. What point is there for someone to see a crowd after a recent accident and yell, get back, get back, I'm a doctor, and then just stand there and not do anything to help the person with medicine or his medical profession. What's the use of jumping on the helps team email and say, I'm going to be there with all you other Christians to help that person move that couch, and then as soon as you get there, all you do is sit on the couch everyone's trying to move. What use is there to profess a faith in Jesus Christ when there is no resulting obedience that proves saving faith. In other words, why even say you're a doctor? Why even say you want to help move? Why even profess that faith? What profit is there if the whole point of faith is salvation, but you're not actually saved? Ultimately, there is none. There is no point. And we see this from the illustration of James. Well, we're looking at three significant matters of faith in light of our call to obedience. We've seen the elementary concern of faith, which is ultimately saving faith, salvation. The enlightening comparison of faith, this illustration of this cold and hungry brother or sister. And finally, thirdly, the essential component of faith. Look at verse 17. He says this here, and he'll say it over and over again uh, in this entire section. He says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So James introduces the moral of his story, the moral of his illustration with the phrase, even so, and the moral is this. The words that seem to indicate care are ultimately uncaring if he does not act to help the person in need. And in the same way, 
the profession of faith that seems to indicate salvation is ultimately of someone who is unsaved if there are no works. And again, going back to the Apostle Paul, he's not saying that works will save you. He's saying there's no indication that your profession is real. And this truth becomes evident in this verse as James says that faith without works is dead if it is by itself. And we understand that the faith he is talking about is not the same faith we have. It's not a saving faith because our faith is alive. He says that faith, it's dead, it's ineffectual, it's useless, it's inactive, it is a corpse. You are professing a corpse. Now, works are not to be seen as some sort of optional or extra aspect of faith, a bonus of the Christian life. Works are essential to true faith because true faith will naturally be expressed in obedience to the Lord. They are inseparable. Works are not optional for the one with true faith. You have to understand that if you see someone or you know someone or perhaps in your own heart you say, well, I think this is me. I think my faith is dead because there is no works. I need to start doing works so that my faith will become alive again. Then you're contradicting what the Apostle Paul says. And that's not going to last. We're all sinners. But there should be a desire to, be, to obey. There should be a feeling of guilt when you disobey. There should be a hatred of sin. There is realistically and biblically an enjoyment of your sin and then a remorse and a guilt and a hatred for days after. Yes, works take effort. They're hard sometimes. It's hard to obey. But they are unsustainable without true faith because one leads to another. Hard, yes. For the one without true saving faith impossible. They can go through the motions, but again, that's not true obedience, and it's not going to last. To be clear, one cannot be saved and then lose that salvation because of a lack of works. If works cannot earn salvation, then works cannot keep salvation. In other words, both the receipt and sustaining of salvation or sanctification are by grace. James is also not arguing for one or the other, faith or works, but the necessity of both. And without both, faith is dead. You can't say, and, and James will actually use this very illustration later on, uh, not in our passage this morning, but in a subsequent passage. But I'll use it now. You can't say that someone is a living human being but does not have breath. Now some who are sick will breathe with difficulty. Many of us have experienced that. You really need to try hard when you're wheezing. Those of you who have had COVID understand that. You really got to focus and, and use your muscles to breathe. Others who are in tip-top shape will breathe more effectively, but both breathe because both are alive. And just like there may be less obedience in the young or sinning believer and more obedience in the older and repenting believer, but both obey. Both have works. Both have a faith that breathes, that is alive. Sometimes, even for the athlete, it takes work to breathe. After his race, 
the reporters come. Hold on. I need to catch my breath. Some need help. Some of us in this room need help breathing when they're asleep with a CPAP machine. There are times when you need to concentrate to breathe properly because it's hard work. But whatever situation, if you're alive, you breathe. And if a body is without breath, it's dead. And faith without works, likewise, is not a living faith. The body, in that illustration alone, does not mean it's a living human being. There's other things that are necessary. Breath, for example. So what does this mean for us? Because most, if not all of us here, have this faith with works. Well, on the one hand, praise God. Praise God for His grace that has granted you true saving faith that desires to honor and serve Him through obedience. Thank God for the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin, that pushes you to greater obedience, that gives you, in conjunction with your God-given conscience, that guilty feeling after you sin that, as you know, must be informed by God's Word. So praise God for His grace. May we find joy in the fruits of our faith and strive not only to excel still more, but to come alongside others, side by side, that phrase ring a bell, to help others to do the same. On the other hand, if you have professed faith in Christ, but have no fruit that is in accordance with Scripture, your faith is not real. I'm not talking about the occasional sin. I'm not talking about the the periods of busyness. I'm talking about simply no fruit at all. Regardless of whatever prayer you have prayed or experience you have experienced, if there is no biblical fruit, then what has happened in the past that makes you claim some sort of faith today is actually dead faith. And if you are in that position, hear me very clearly. Friend, that's not a criticism. That's an invitation. We also need to understand that when we preach to the unbeliever, we must emphasize that their behavior, no matter how good, cannot earn God's favor. So in the same vein, we must stop having what I call hopeful fellowship. Let me explain what I mean by that phrase, hopeful fellowship. Usually, I illustrate the Scriptures. I know it's strange to illustrate my illustration, but I think it'll help because I think a lot of us do this. A few months ago, I saw a news story about a crackdown on recycling. As you know, in our area, the people who collect our trash and the, the recycle bins, the blue bins, is the company's called Recology. And various representatives from Recology were actually showing up at people's homes, unbeknownst to them, on trash day, so their bins were at the curb. They were popping open the blue recycle bins and digging through them. And they wanted to find anything that had been thrown in there that was not supposed to be in there. And they, then they would actually go to the house and say, hey, you know, this doesn't belong in the recycle bin. And they were very gracious. They were giving the benefit of the doubt. 
and the things that they found in the blue bin that, they did, not, uh, that did not belong there fell into three categories. The first was items that were clearly trash, but people put in the recycle bin because their trash was full, trying to sneak in, because they don't charge you for the blue bin, right? So just put in our extra trash in there. The second category were items that were actually recyclable. They had the little three arrows, the recycle sign, but not recycled by Recology. For example, those plastic bags you used to get at the grocery store, you can't put that in the blue bin. That's why some of your grocery stores say, put them in here, we will recycle them, because they're specialty uh, recycle places that do that, right? For example, and I really don't think anyone would do that, you understand like, a broken TV is recyclable, but you don't throw that in your blue bin, right? Cardboard, aluminum, things like that. The third category they called, or the lady being interviewed, called hopeful recyclables. These were things that people probably kind of knew were not recyclable, but still threw it in the bin hoping that it was and hoping that Recology would actually recycle it rather than it ending up in a landfill. A common object was like hard plastic, like it was plastic Tonka trucks or whatever. Technically recyclable, but not by Recology. And sometimes I believe we do that with friends and especially family. Hopeful fellowship. Deep down, we know that there is no evidence of salvation. But because there was a profession of faith, because there was a baptism even, because we hope they are not going to hell, we let it go and treat them as if they are truly saved. And we partake in hopeful fellowship. We need to understand from this passage that we are not to judge those people, We are not to condemn those people. We are to love them and evangelize them in the hopes of them avoiding God's condemnation. What we are definitely not to do is to hope they're believers when there is absolutely no evidence from the Word of God that you trust and believe and would die for that they are actually believers. This involves people who are part of false religions, who have a, again, the Apostle Paul, works-based righteousness. This may be people who, uh, your children, because you can't bear the thought of them not truly being saved, and yet they haven't been to church in years, the way they speak to you, the way they live their lives, the kind of people they date and live with, clearly indicate they're not believers, but you're holding on to that 20-year-old walk-down-the-aisle-at-youth-group profession of faith, and you know deep down in your heart that you are doing nothing good for them by assuming that they are believers In fact, I cannot think, when we talk about the ultimate end of that person's soul, I cannot think of anything worse that you could do for a professing believer who has no fruit 
to affirm that they are saved. We need to be careful. I get it. It's hard. You love them. You love them so much you don't want to get into another argument, another debate, another, see, this is why I don't go to church, Mom. But friends, we need to love them. We can't assume that they're believers when they're not. We are to give the benefit of the, the doubt. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about that, believes all things. That means give the benefit of the doubt. I know that's hard for many of us, but we do that. And as someone who believes in God's definition of love, as a pastor who preaches to you God's definition of love, as a fellow brother in Christ who will confront you if you do not give the benefit of the doubt, I tell you that the one thing to not give the benefit of the doubt about is someone's salvation. Because the consequences are too great. And I don't know about you, but I cannot think of any consequence that is greater than that which is defined by that word that we don't even fully understand, eternity. We need to understand that true faith results in works. Well, three significant matters of faith in light of our call to obedience, the example elementary concern, the enlightening comparison, and the essential component. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace that we know you, we have true saving faith, that despite our sin, despite our selfishness, we desire to obey you, we desire to glorify you, we desire to make the sacrifices and the difficulties, and we understand that this is your work in us. This is the natural connection to true saving faith. If there's anyone here who has professed faith but is not truly a believer, may you convict them, Lord. May you help them to see that their works are not works of obedience and that they are not indicative of true, save, of true saving faith. And Lord, may you save them, even this morning. Father, in our relationships, in our evangelism, may we with love and compassion and tears in our eyes call people to repentance even if they have claimed that they have already done so. May those we interact with see and understand because of what we share with them and how we live our lives that there are works that explain and are indicative of true saving faith. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us discernment and how to present that to our family members, to our friends, to our co-workers, whoever it may be, in a way that does not encourage a workspace righteousness, but encourages true faith in you and repentance so that the works would naturally flow out. And even as we come to a time of the Lord's table, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts in this regard 
and help us to take of the elements in a worthy manner. Help us to enjoy and learn and grow from this so important of series. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.